If you'll take your worship folders and turn uh, to uh, page 9, we'll turn to God's Word there in Psalm Psalm 95, and then uh, several pages of comment to follow. We've been looking at the life of David, and this week we take a break from the narrative of his life to look at some of his writings. Psalm 95 is not attributed to David in the superscripts there below it uh, in most of our Bibles, but we learn from Hebrews that David is the author. And so we come from verse 1 through verse 12 or 11 of uh, Psalm 95 this morning. This is God's Word. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and exalt him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great God above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands form the dry land. Come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massa in the desert, where your fathers tested and tried me, though they had seen what I, had di- what I did. For forty years I was angry with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. It is uh, very helpful to us. But we pray that we would make of us listeners and hearers of it to the extent that it penetrates by your spirit to the very depths of our hearts, instructing and teaching us guiding and directing us, comforting and supporting us. And we look to you this morning as always to be our teacher and guide. In Jesus' name, amen. This is a psalm about worship. And the reason I've selected it this morning, not only because it falls within the purview of our series on David, but also because... Pastor Kevin Ball begins a new series in just a few moments downstairs on this great subject. And for five five weeks, he will be teaching us and guiding us at the 11 o'clock hour. I hope that you will stay. We're giving our regular Sunday school teachers a break, the adult teachers anyway, and the high schoolers and the college and career and the adults will be joining downstairs together to hear what the Bible says about worship. It is a subject of much controversy today, particularly surrounded about the subject of worship style and preferences. But this psalm goes to the heart of what it is. It goes to the heart of our lives. What's number one with us? First of all, what is worship? 
Worship, you'll hear several definitions in these next weeks with Kevin leading us downstairs, but I want to present this one just to begin our time this morning. The worship is the act of ascribing ultimate value to something in a way that energizes and engages our whole minds. This is number one with us. He is number one with us. Now, the fact is, other things can be number one. And that's the problem with the children of Israel and why they spent 40 days wandering in the 40 years wandering in the wilderness. And we can make very good things ultimate things and therefore distort and distress our lives. A lot of good things at the center of our lives or certainly in the periphery. But only one can be central. And Jesus says, David says, the Bible says, it must be him. But what does that look like? What does it look like for God to be number one? I mean, that's something that we could mostly raise our hand and say, yes, I want that. I want him to be first. I want him to be number one. What it means at least is that our mind and our emotion and our will are completely engaged in keeping him in that place. You'll notice in this passage that there are three calls to worship. Verse 1, come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Our emotions, we come to him emotionally to praise him and to thank him. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and exalt him with music and song. And then the will, come, let us bow down, let us humble ourselves. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. We come with our emotions to praise Him, and we also bend then before Him in submission. He occupies the high and lofty place that excites us and calls us to Him in praise, and He also quiets us and says, I know what's right for you, and I want you to listen to me. So come, David says, let us bow down in worship. Let us not just exalt him and praise him emotionally, but willfully let us submit. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture and the flock under his care. We got the position right. He is central and supreme. He is the one worthy of worship. And we are simply his flock, and we kneel before him and bow. And then finally, verse 8, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah. This is the will. For the Hebrew, the heart was also the place of the mind and the will and the decision-making. Do not harden your hearts. Come, Come before him and make him first. And if you are disappointed in something or other, do not allow that to guide you. Worship is intended to engage all three in assigning ultimate value to God. The psalmist David is enumerating the excellencies of God, and he says, let's look at this until we just explode inside, until he's number one in everything we do. He's the only one who can love us back. The things that we place such high emphasis on cannot, not like this. 
Why should we worship God, secondly, this morning? Because your whole life is already oriented towards something that is of ultimate value to you. We're talking now about a transfer. We make idols. We worship the wrong thing. We focus on good things and make them ultimate when he alone is the only ultimate one. Your whole life is already oriented towards something that is of ultimate value to you. It's true of every one of us. What is it? Worship the wrong things and it will distort your life. You're either worshiping the wrong things or you're worshiping the only one that will not twist your life out of shape and distort it. What is it that means the most to you? What is it that you cannot live without? What is it that you must, simply must, have? Answer that question. You may not have carried that answer into this room this morning. It may take you a while to think that over. Spend some time this week answering that question. What is it that you must have? What is it that you cannot do without? Many of us will place loved ones at the top of that list. Our vocations. Our health. But if so, if those things are ultimate, good as they are, we have a problem. We have a problem of misapprehension, of elevating something that's good to be ultimate when there's only one ultimate. He is the only true God. So transfer your ultimate value to him. This is what changes our lives. If I have him, if I have that, my life will be okay. He is that one and the only one who can take that position. Everything else is less. Good though it may be, everything else is less. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with singing and with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God. He's it. He takes the one place that no other can have. When he's there, everything else falls into place. When he isn't, Distortion and confusion come. And so it's important to ask ourselves, as I say, what is it? Rebecca Manley Pippert puts it this way, whatever controls us is our true Lord. The person who seeks power is controlled by power. The person who lives for acceptance by other people is controlled by the people we seek to please. But one thing is certain, we do not control ourselves. We are controlled by the Lord of our life. That's what gets us up in the morning. <clears throat> That's what causes us the most anxiety. That's what motivates us. I must have it. I cannot live without it. Those people attending Grief Share, 
who have recently lost loved ones close to them are learning that they can live without that person. They don't want to. They would wish that anything, they would be willing to give anything perhaps for their return and for a reunion, (coughs) excuse me, with them. (coughs) But they are learning that they can live without them. And we're warned here. You can live without the things that you most want, but not without me. Not without the Lord. And so our ultimate problem is always what we worship. Because when that's threatened, we go crazy. Don't touch that. You can't have that. But when our ultimate affection is on the Lord, nothing can touch us. Nothing can separate us from his love. Nothing can diminish that relationship. If his love in your life is more satisfying and more beautiful than anything else, you will not be destroyed by love issues, power issues, anxiety issues, etc. Anxiety may have a medical component, but it often arises from what's going to happen to that which is most important to me. How could I survive if I didn't have it? What we need to do is reassign the ultimate value of your life from what it currently is to the living God. Everything else, in a sense, is dead and less. Reassign the ultimate value of your life from what it currently is to God, and you will become infallibly happy. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Anything else that we have, we can lose. We can lose our health, we can lose our loved ones, we can lose our jobs, we can lose anything else of great value to us. Thank you, thank you. All those things we can lose. But we can't lose him. When I go to the depths, the psalmist says, you were there. When I go to the heights, you were there. Wherever I go, you were there. You love me. I can't lose you. Now that is security. True security. Relational security. Even though I go through the valley of the shadow of death, thou art with me, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. I shall not fear my enemies, I shall not fear evil, I shall not fear anything because you are with me. Everything else is at risk. Everything else can be taken. Everything else is, in a sense, expendable or losable. So worship is wonderful because it says true things about my life. Worship is not a duty. It is a transfer of your affection and my affection off of those things that will destroy us to the one thing that will not distort our life. It's a transfer. It's it's a transaction. It's a movement. When I see what I want the most, I say, okay, that's great, but not compared to him. 
not compared to what he can do for me and what he will do for me, not only now, but through all eternity. So the object of my affection is not just my family, my job, and my health, and my standing, and my hobbies. The object of my affection is him. Auguste Comte, the French sociologist in the 19th century, he, he recognized this, although he was an atheist. And so he proposed, he said, I, I, he said, I know that the human heart, only he said it in French, he said, I know the human heart needs something. So what I propose is a pantheon, a religion, and, and we'll, let's, we'll put together some ritual and some ceremony. Let's have a religion of, of where we worship admirable people. So we looked down through the ages, and he particularly proposed Cicero and Goethe and others to be sort of like a, uh, uh, a pantheon, a, a gathering, a, a Mount Rushmore of great individuals. And if we would be ele- our lives would be elevated if we would focus on that. But he recognized that even though he didn't acknowledge the existence of God, the human heart was so lonely without him that we had to have some connection to something. A novel idea. Actually, quite popular today. Among atheists, there is a desire at least to appraise and appreciate admirable lives reading the the writings and expressing appreciation for the teachings and the music and the art, etc., of people that they consider to be admirable. That's something to which they aspire, to which they desire to give value and worth and, and, and dignity. But they are all just like Dagon of the Philistines. They are all inadequate. They are all just men. Wonderfully gifted, but simply not sufficient and worthy of our praise. So how can we worship in a way that is right? It's not just a matter of what could we worship and why should we worship, but how. If it's not a duty, then you need these things to worship well. You need community. The psalm is in the plural everywhere. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Notice that. True worship includes community. Lately, it seems to me that the most important word in the Lord's Prayer, if we had to distill it down, is the first word. Our. Notice he doesn't say, Oh, Holy Father, or Exalted Lord, or Eternal God. He says, Our. And when he's first, he's, he's first among us. Unless you are in a worshiping community, you will never know God as he is. We cannot just find him alone. We are called to be a part of a community, and the more diverse the community, the better, giving a fuller picture of God, healing the breaches that divide cultures and people. Indeed, personal worship only goes so far. 
There is an aspect of true worship that is corporate, that is plural, and it must be. It must be, which means I must come into the presence of God with people who are different than me, who think different than me, who act and value various things differently than I do. But you cannot worship God alone, simply alone. It's not an option. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. The vision of the Lord's Prayer and the vision of this psalm is a community of people desperately different and disparate, but wonderfully united in what they value most. See, the community of Christ is never meant to be one of unanimity in the other things. It's only in the submission to the ultimate thing that we find our connection. Secondly, what unites us is truth. How does the psalmist know that God is the great king and that he is our shepherd? The psalmist is submitting to what the prophets have said about God. David is listening to what the Bible says, what he's been taught. Live off the truth. You can't design your own religion in God. Why not? Because only he is the living God. Anything you invent is not the living God. You have made it impossible to be a part of a community because your God is only your own. We are united together, not because we all agree about what God is, but because he is number one and we submit to that. And to his values and to his rules. And frankly, many times we don't like it. His rules, his standards are inconvenient. But they are eternal. And they are inviolate. They are unique. Therefore, you can connect with any Christian from any culture in the world if you submit to the same body of truth that they do. You can worship the same living God anywhere and in any language because he alone is the one true God. How do we worship? We worship in community and we worship according to truth, not according to vain imaginations or innovations. Hey, I've got an idea. How about this? No. I know what we should do. Let's do that. No. Let's redefine how, how, how we uh, gather together. No, he has defined us. He's placed the limits. He's the one who alone to who, is the one to whom we answer. Thirdly, spirit. The purpose of worship is to come before him, to come into his presence, as it says again and again. Let us come before him with thanksgiving. But isn't God everywhere? Yes, yes, he is. He is omnipresent, but we seek the presence of the Lord in passages like Isaiah 64. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Or Psalm 51. Cast me not away from your presence. You will sense his reality and almost feel him if truth and community are brought together in focusing on God. So if the first two are present, if he is our God, and if he's the one true God, then we are coming into his presence, and that's what unites us. That's what gives us hope and spiritual unity.
Christians who are skilled in worship are like sailors. They're looking for the wind and knowing what to do when it comes. You cannot generate the wind, but you know what to do with it when it comes. You cannot require that God answer our prayers, no. But we can come into his presence and let him work. Let him lead, let him guide, let him direct us. So how can we worship when we are together? Not unified in every way, but when we are together, according to truth, in his presence, guided by the gospel, this Sabbath rest that's mentioned in the latter portion of the psalm. Remember what happened in the wilderness. They died in their wanderings and did not experience his Sabbath rest. Why end the psalm this way? The psalm begins so positively in such an uplifting and inspiring manner. And now he says, for 40 years, verse 10, I was angry with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray and they have not known my ways. Why end the psalm this way? Why is in Hebrews 4, does Psalm 95 on worship warn worshipers not to miss the Sabbath rest when Joshua got the children of Israel into the promised land? Because there must be a deeper rest still available to us that we can miss. What would that be? Just as God rested on the seventh day, now page 12, from his physical work, so in the gospel we spiritually rest from our good works. Jesus came to earth to be our substitute, living in the life that we should have lived and dying the death that we should have died. Believe the gospel and you don't have to be perfect anymore. Rest in him. Just Rest in Him. We say, yes, but what about this and what about that? And He says, just rest in me. When they were in the wilderness, they wanted to know where their food was coming from. He said, I'll take care of you. They wanted to know about their clothing and their shoes didn't wear out. They wanted to know where they were going. He said, I will lead you. Just rest in me. And they wouldn't. They wouldn't. They became stiff-necked. They insisted that they had to know, and they needed to know, and they must know. In other words, they said, you're not God, we are. You answer to us. And he said, oh no, you answer to me. And so wander in circles. Find your own way out of the wilderness. Go ahead. If you don't understand resting in Him, this, then worship will be turned into just one more work, one more load weighing you down, looking to yourself, not to Him. Well, it's Sunday, i got to go worship. It's whatever, it's time for my devotions. And it becomes a work. Worship, the most exalted... Activity that we can enter into becomes a work that we check off our list. Went to the store, check. Worked out today, check. Called my mother, check. Worshiped God, check. I'm good. I'm done. No. 
If you don't understand the gospel rest, the peace in trusting in Christ, what he did for us, then worship will be turned into a duty, an obligation, a work. Instead, it's the other way around. Worship comes and flows from the rest we have in him. The peace that comes from the reconciling power and the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ to, to settle things between us. As a result, we worship. We don't worship to get to God. We get to God, then we worship. In Psalm 57, instead of asking God to change the bad things that are going on, two times he says, Be exalted, O God, above the heavens, and let thy glory be over all the earth. And so if you want one practical thing to do, that you can maybe check off your list, Make this the theme of your life. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens, and let thy glory be over all the earth. Whatever else you take care of, you're supreme, you're wonderful, you're powerful, you're overall. I don't know about this sickness. I don't know about this family strife. I don't know about this financial stress. I don't know about the questions related to my job. But I do know this. I want you to be exalted above the heavens and let your glory be over all the earth. And if I would simply make that number one in my life, these other things will be taken care of. Jesus said it exactly. Seek first me and my kingdom and all these other things will be added unto you. Matthew 6, verse 33. We should ask for things finally when we are in trouble, no question. But we can calm ourselves best with worship. If I belong to the great king above all gods, someday all evil and trouble will be a dim memory. So now I need to worship. It alone gives me rest. Do you have that rest? Have you taken Christ as your Savior? Have you said to him, yes, Lord, I want to do your things, your way. I want you to be number one. I've been striving and trying to put other things first, and it doesn't work. It doesn't satisfy. It doesn't please me. It distorts my life, and it causes me, even with those good things, to get twisted all out of shape and to have terrible anxiety within me, lest I lose those things. Now I need to worship you, for you alone can give me rest, because Jesus at the cross, purchased it for me. He alone is worthy. We could not have taken that role. We are not perfect like he was. And our offering would not have been acceptable to him. Instead, he went for us. And that's what the table is about as we come now to it. It's what he did for us. Because of his work, we lay down our doing. We lay down even the act and work of worship. And we just rejoice. And we receive. We relax in his marvelous grace. 
and we say, thank you, Lord. Drive away my fears. Drive away all secondary issues. Be exalted, O Lord, above the heavens. Let thy glory be over all the earth. Make him first. Let us pray. Yes, Lord, again, we've been guilty of allowing and making other things more important than you. We have rejoiced in them, and we have sought them, and they have brought a certain amount of satisfaction and contentment. But it is not enough. Still we thirst. Still we are inadequately satisfied. Because those good things that we have made ultimate are not you. They do not live. They cannot love us back. They are not proper objects of worship. They're secondary things. Help us, O Lord, to make you first. In the midst of our anxieties and fears and uncertainties, be exalted, O Lord, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. O come, let us bow down and worship. Let us make him the one before whom we kneel. Let him be first. As we come to your table, we recognize that you are worthy of these things, that you're not just another God, that you're not just another object of our affection. You are the living God, the only one, and we praise you and we bow before you in Jesus' name. Amen.